Chapter 11, C, of Bible Defense of Slavery by Josiah Priest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But the above quotation from St. Paul's writings in the New Testament on this particular subject is not all that he has said. See Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, as follows. Servants, that is, slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart, as unto Christ. This is a most remarkable statement, as it recognizes the doctrine of Negro slavery, the master as well as the slave, a state of surveillance and lowly submission to such masters, and enjoining obedience to be paid, even to trembling and fear, with absolute singleness of heart, as unto Christ. This language and doctrine is very different from that of the abolitionists of the present time, who say that a negro slave does right in order to get away from his master, to steal his master's horse, his money, or anything else or to steal from others on the road, anything to aid his flight for liberty. On this subject, who is wrong? St. Paul? The Holy Ghost? Adam Clark or the abolitionists of America and elsewhere, who have mighty deeds yet to achieve in the line of politics, bottomed on their Negro sympathies? that the servants alluded to by St. Paul in the verse above quoted, referred to bondmen or absolute slaves, is clear from the eighth verse of the same, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 8, which reads as follows, Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. On this verse, Dr. Clark says that the word bond, therein used, means a slave, or one bought with money. Again, in his letter to a Grecian convert to Christianity, whose name was Philemon, a citizen of Colossae, a white man, as the Greeks were white, he wrote respecting a slave who had run away from Philemon and had come to Rome, where Paul then was. This slave's name was Onesimus, who, for some reason or other, had run away, and, happening to hear the great orator St. Paul preach, became a convert to his principles respecting Christianity and its author. In that letter to the slave's master, at verses 10, 11, and 12, he says, I beseech not command thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in the faith in my bonds, who in times past was to thee unprofitable, that is, he had been a bad slave, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him that is my own bowels. On the words, as above used by St. Paul, whom I have sent again, Dr. Clark says, 
the christian religion never cancels any civil relations a slave on being converted and becoming a free man in christ has no right to claim on that account emancipation from the service of his master justice therefore required st paul to send onesimus back to his master he further says on this case quote, there is no reason to believe that onesimus was of the kindred of philemon and that we must take the term flesh as used in the sixteenth verse of that letter as a reference made by paul to the purchase right philemon had on onesimus he was a part of his property as a slave this was his condition slavery is a civil regulation in this country which abolitionists are aiming to overthrow by applying the scripture principle of benevolence but as st paul has not thus attacked slavery who are these that take it upon them to do this in the face of the christian religion and the laws of the union from the facts of the case of this slave it is self-evident that his being sent back to his master again was owing to the influence of the christian religion as under its sanction neither the convert nor the minister could therefore for a moment withhold the claims of justice in this particular oh but says a wide-awake abolitionist to be sure the christian religion allows of no injustice and on that very account that slave should have been set free as there is no greater injustice this side of the grave than to enslave a negro man st paul however has seen fit to judge differently and has given a verdict in favor of the master had st paul have viewed the case as an abolitionist would have viewed it he would not have sent the man again to his master he would have told him to remain free where he was or to go whither he would but as a judge in the house of god he exerted his authority in the case and sent the slave again to his owner on purely moral principles and no other or he would not have meddled with it at all as indeed he had no right on any other ground but some contend and have even determined that because st paul said at the sixteenth verse of his letter to philemon that when onesimus the slave should arrive at the house of his owner his master was not to receive him as a servant but above a servant a brother beloved that he was therefore manumitted by the authority of the apostle and from this they claim that slavery was thus abolished forever out of the christian church but such a conclusion will not answer as it is not responded to by other passages on the same subject and besides the entire contrary appears from the same apostle's writings the slave onesimus had become a christian and in this particular he was exalted to an equality with his master 
if that master was in fact a christian at heart as god is no respecter of the souls of men giving grace to all alike when he is sought unto by black or white this fact had elevated that slave far above his former character as a sinner and a very bad and unprofitable slave as paul says he had been yet his temporal condition remained unchanged the same as before on that verse the sixteenth in virtue of which some men claim the abolishment of slavery by the authority of christianity dr clark remarks that st paul said as much and no more than to say to philemon do not receive onesimus merely as a slave nor treat him according to that condition as before times but as a brother a genuine christian and as a person particularly dear to paul in all this adam clark though an abolitionist could see no release of this man from his temporal bondage from anything that appears in the text that st paul sanctioned any such doctrine as the manumitting of bond slaves because they happened to become converted does not appear while the contrary is abundant which we are able further to produce from the text of the new testament and of paul's own writings see timothy chapter six verses one through four let as many servants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor that the name of god be not blasphemed and they that have believing masters let them not despise them but rather do service because they are faithful and beloved partakers of the benefits these things teach and exhort if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words even the words of our lord jesus christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness he is proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and strife of words on the subject of this part st paul's remarks in that letter to timothy adam clark says that the word servant in that place signifies slave and the word yoke the state of slavery or bondage from this we prove the real existence of slavery in the christian church in the very time of its organizers and founders and had it been anywhere abolished that critic of critics adam clark would have found it out and would have marked the place in the most pointed manner but it is not to be found in the whole bible which we shall further show in due time in the above cited chapter sixth of timothy at the third verse there are found some very remarkable allusions to the subject of slavery which we cannot pass over and are as follows if any man says st paul teach otherwise and consents not to wholesome words even to the words of our lord jesus christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness he is proud 
or ignorant, knowing nothing. Now to what words of Jesus Christ does St. Paul allude, which he applies to the case of slaves? See John chapter 8 verses 35 and 36. And the servant abideth not in the house for ever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. In these two verses of the gospel by St. John, there is a manifest allusion to the fact and condition of slaves. Of this fact, the Savior took occasion to illustrate, by way of similitude, the condition of a wicked man, who is the slave of sin, and to show that, as a son who was the heir in a house, could set a bond-slave free, if that son was of a proper age. So he, the Son of God, can set the enslaved soul free from sin, when he would be free indeed. In this allusion of the Savior, we do not find the fact of slavery reproved, but merely alluded to, as a thing or a usage then existing, and therefore recognized as a practice, not in itself sinful, if practiced right and mercifully. If this sentiment is not correct, we are at a sad loss to justify the Savior's allusion to a circumstance so wicked, as abolitionists believe it is, without reproving it. On these very remarkable words of our Savior, and St. Paul's allusion to them, Adam Clark has written the following, quote, now the slave abideth not in the family, as if Jesus had said, And now that I am speaking of slaves, I will add one thing more, viz. A slave has no right to any part of the inheritance of the family to which he belongs. But the son, the legitimate son, has a right. He can make any servant free, though no slave can do this. Because, we will add, one piece of property cannot assist another piece of property, as they are legally powerless. It is very likely that, in the time of St. Paul, there was agitated the question of manumitting slaves, and that it occasioned trouble and unfriendly surmisings as to the designs of the new religion, the gospel. Paul, therefore, came out in severe terms against all such, accusing them of doting about questions, and strife of words, and of being proud, or ignorant, knowing nothing. As much as if he had said, You are ignorant of the determination of God from the beginning on this very subject, even in the times of Noah, Moses, and the prophets. Read, and you will learn that the race of Ham are judicially placed under the ban of servitude. On this very subject, and the passage of St. Paul, Dr. Clark has written thus, quote, It appears that there were teachers of a different kind in the church at that time, a sort of religious levelers, who preached that the converted slave had as much right to the master's service 
as the master had to his teachers of this kind have been in vogue long since the days of st paul and timothy this is a true statement for if adam clark were now alive he would find thousands of just such levelers in america and england who declare that the scriptures make no difference between the interests of slaves and the interests of their masters to prove this we refer the reader to the abolitionist pamphlet entitled the bible against slavery number six page twenty five eighteen thirty eight where the writer labors hard to show that the mosaic system of law made no difference between the master and the slave in relation to their natural freedom or optional powers avowing that the mosaic system was framed as much to advance the interest and gratify the wishes of servants as it was their masters this statement of theirs as above is not true even in relation to a hebrew servant for whenever a hebrew was made a slave on account of debt or crimes it was done by force of law in which neither his comfort will or interests considered in a pecuniary light further than that was to be treated as a hired man till his debts were paid or the crime expiated how much less therefore were the mitigating circumstances in the case of the negro or canaanite slave who were deemed to be lawful subjects of oppression except their daily food and rest on sabbath days although hebrew servants and criminal delinquents went always free at the times of the little jubilees as provided by the law yet there was one case in which even a hebrew servant could not avail himself of this emancipating law to prove this we have only to refer to exodus chapter twenty one verses five and six which reads as follows and if the servant a hebrew shall plainly say i love my master my wife who was born a slave and my children i will not go out free then this master shall bring him unto the judges he shall also bring him unto the door or unto the doorpost and his master with his own hands shall bore or drill his ear through with an awl and he shall serve him for ever this awful sentence of a total loss of liberty was thus passed upon a hebrew servant because he despised his natural privileges for reasons of his own choosing rather to be a slave during his natural life than to leave the service of his master and be free how much less therefore could the jubilees reach the case of one of the accursed race who was not of the hebrew blood nor of the blood of japheth from this fact we perceive how entirely reckless of truth abolitionists are who set up claims in favor of the race of canaan and ham as servants which the law of moses did not accord even to servants of the hebrew blood such a position as this 
in favor of canaanite slaves would have placed them in far better circumstances than were the unfortunate servants of their own race a thing which fully contradicts the express statements of the law of moses on that very subject for in that law hebrew servants who were made thus by being sold were to be treated as they would treat hired men and not like bondmen at the very time when christianity was being set forth and established in judea and the surrounding countries by the saviour his disciples and the apostles after the crucifixion the custom of owning and dealing in slaves greatly prevailed in all the roman empire and yet we do not find this practice once referred to by way of reproof in the new testament how strange if it was looked upon by those moral benefactors of the human race as some seem to look upon it now but as a reason for this strange omission it is said by abolitionists that although at the time christianity was introduced into the world slavery was everywhere prevalent yet christ nor his heralds did not see fit to rebuke the sin because it would have operated against the gospel encyclopedia edinburgh edition under the head of slavery their opinion is found here we pause with astonishment and inquire whether the above reason for that omission is the best they can think of if it is then it follows that god incarnate in the economy of his church on earth is thereby represented as succumbing to what abolitionists say is a great sin merely because the sin was a deeply rooted and popular sin and to have denounced it would have occasioned the gospel to have been evil spoken of as aiming at a civil revolution tell it not in gath among the negroes lest they should show their ivory nor in christian countries lest sceptical men might deride so puerile a captain as the miserable idea would make the great saviour to be this opinion found in the work above alluded to is the most singular and monstrous that we have ever fallen in with among the written principles of men as it represents jesus christ who reigns in his own house the church and in the world as its creator as being under fear lest were he to have reproved a certain great and popular sin it would have injured the cause of religion in the world and especially in judea and the roman dependencies his business on earth was to reprove sins of every name and nature and to introduce principles which in their effect should establish all righteousness without fear of opposition from the ignorance the prejudices and cupidity of men the prophets were not afraid to reprove sin whether personal or national though they lost their lives by it how much more therefore would not the inspirer of the prophets reprove sin 
who was in Christ without measure. This is a hard point for abolitionism to weather, for if the founder of the Christian religion, in the very midst of the commission of the sin complained of, did not reprove it, who are abolitionists that they should? Are they more righteous than the master? Is it not enough if the servant be as his master? Were it not far more wise to believe that God, in Christ, had respect to his own determinations on the subject of negro slavery, as signified to Noah, to Moses, and to the Hebrews, which was not to be abolished, even by benign influences of the gospel? In proof that the Greeks and Romans, as above intimated, had vast numbers of slaves, we show from Adam's Roman Antiquities, page 38. At Rome, he says, there was a marketplace which was devoted wholly to the sale and purchase of slaves. They were commonly exposed naked, and having around their necks a scroll on which was written an account of their good qualities. From the sale of slaves arose the principal part of the enormous wealth of Crassus. In the times of the Roman Republic, the owners were allowed to put their slaves to death when they would, or to torture them by all manner of cruelties. By the Roman lawmakers, slaves were esteemed the same as other property. They were not allowed as witnesses in any court, ecclesiastical or civil. It was the same also among the Hebrews, under the force of the Mosaic legislation, as well as among all other nations, tongues, and people. Some of the Romans, says both Seneca and Pliny, had whole legions of slaves, and others even twenty thousand. The Romans, according to Strabo, says Rollin, volume 1, page 232, worked their gold mines in Spain by slaves. This author says that in his time, as many as forty thousand slaves were employed annually in the mines, who, by continued scourging, were caused to labor beyond their strength, day and night, by which means they generally all perished underground. But against all personal cruelties exercised by parents, guardians, and masters upon their children, as apprentices, hired servants, or slaves, as well as dumb animals, God's law, as well as his gospel, is preemptory, and although the various classes, as above mentioned, are, by the law of God, put under rule, yet does it not authorize wanton barbarity, but enjoins mercy, moderation, patience, and justice toward them. End of chapter 11c